you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and turn with me this morning to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1. I want to step away for a few weeks from our series through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, After the first of the year, we'll come back to that. We'll finish that up. But I want to take our time together through the month of December. I want to preach a series I've given the title, Heaven and Nature Sing. And you'll recognize that from a familiar Christmas carol that we sing this time of year. But uh, what I want to do, I want to use certain songs that we sing this time of year, and I want to use those songs to illustrate uh, the Christmas story as we make our way to Bethlehem by December 25th. You know, one of the first signs that we're moving into the Christmas season is the fact that the music changes in public places like restaurants, uh, shopping malls, stores. It's like one day you're walking through your favorite store when you find yourself humming a tune that's playing in the background, and it's the tune of one of your favorite holiday classics. Imagine coming to this time of year, though, without any of the music. Imagine Christmas time without any of the familiar songs that we sing this time of year. There's something about the music of Christmas that encourages the heart. And in particular, the carols of Christmas that we sing this time of year uh, hold special significance. And, and really, uh, there's some wonderful theology in so many of these uh, Christmas carols that we sing. Now, I'm not talking about Jingle Bell Rock, all right? But joy to the world, the Lord has come, or hark the herald angels sing. You know, that word carol is closely related to uh, the word choral or a, a choir song or chorus. And uh, the idea behind the word is a song of celebration and joy. And for many of us, uh, Christmas is a time for music. It's a time for celebration. Uh, It's a time for family get-togethers where we share a meal with those we love. We exchange gifts. And at the same time, we know that for others, this time of year can be a time of unwanted pressure, uh, increased loneliness, the thought of family squabbles. And and, uh, in fact, there are studies that show that depression Uh, Feelings of loneliness and even depression are at all-time highs this season of the year. And you add to that all of the difficulty that so many of us have experienced in 2020 alone, I think all of us stand in need of some joy, don't you? Well, Christmas is a time of joy. And joy is something that for the believer is produced supernaturally in our lives by the presence of the indwelling spirit. And that's only possible because of the reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his finished work. Through faith in his finished work, uh, you as a person can know what real joy is. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to Christmas. When it comes to Christmas time, I know there's a lot of man-made tradition, but what I'm talking about is is nothing that's man-made. I'm talking about divine accomplishment. Uh, there's something about Christmas. We're not celebrating what man has done. We're not celebrating uh, what man has achieved for himself. But Christmas is all about a divine event, something that God has done. We're talking about divine accomplishment. 
And it's the most miraculous, compelling narrative in history of how God sent his son into the world. And it's something that's really cause for joy. And that was something that a hymn writer by the name of Isaac Watts well understood. Isaac Watts was born in 1674. Uh, he grew up to be a clergyman and prolific hymn writer who composed more than 700 hymns, many of which have been left and are still a treasure trove for the church today. Uh, some of his more familiar hymns are hymns such as these, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, and Did My Sovereign Die. Now, it's interesting, I was looking through a database of songs that he wrote. One of his lesser-known hymns was this, and I kid you not, the title is, Blessed is the Man Whose Bowels Move. Now, listen, that meant something totally different in the 1700s than it does today. I guarantee you that's a classic that we're not anytime soon going to be bringing back. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Isaac Watts really was... Uh, uh, a maverick of sorts in his day. Because up until that point in the church, the common consensus among the church was, if you're going to sing, you need to be singing the Psalms. Anything that was put to music in the church, it had to be from the Hebrew hymn book. It had to be the Psalms. Isaac Watts came along and he sort of challenged that idea and said, no, we can be inspired from scripture and the songs that we sing when we come together for worship ought to be informed by Scripture and true to Scripture, but he well believed that God had given creative ability uh, to, to uh, man to, to still be able to write hymns that could be sung, and uh, I'm so glad that he really pushed that envelope in his day. Well, in, in uh, the early 1700s, he was reading his Bible. In particular, he was reading from Psalm 98 one day, and he was gripped by the truth of Psalm 98, verse 4, which says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And so as Isaac Watts poured over those words, he picked up the quill and he began to write down some words of his own. And when he had finished, he had written a four stanza poem that began in this now familiar way, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Now, you fast forward about a, a century after that uh, was written, there was a guy by the name of Lowell Mason who was a Boston musician, and he would compose a melody that was inspired from two songs from Handel's Messiah. And when he had finished, he had come up with the melody, but he needed some lyrics to go with the melody. And finally, he stumbled across that poem that Isaac Watts had written, and it would only be a matter of time before people all around the world were singing joy to the world to the tune that we're all familiar with now. Now listen, in view of all that has happened in our lives this year alone, it may be more vital than ever before to remember the true source of our joy. Now folks, our circumstances do not determine our joy. The things in our possession do not determine 
our joy. The current state of affairs in society around us, this does not determine our joy as believers. What determines my joy and your joy as someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ is this, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And that's a truth that we see here in this first chapter of Luke's gospel. In a passage of scripture that's known as the Annunciation, which is simply the record or the narrative of how the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the Virgin Mary to announce the news that she had been chosen for a special task because God was going to send his own son into the world. So if you've got your place there in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, begin reading with me. The Bible says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now I want to stop reading there. But as the narrative continues in verse 39, Mary leaves. She goes to visit with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was six months pregnant with little John, John the Baptist, who would be the herald or the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Mary goes to Elizabeth and tells the news to Elizabeth, what Gabriel had told to her, uh, you'll notice uh, down in verse 44 that little John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb, and the Bible says he leaps for joy. It's, it's his first prophecy as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's prophesying from the womb that there's something special about this child that Mary is going to deliver. And so in verse 46, Mary herself begins to worship and her song of praise is recorded there down through verse 56 and she uses the language of joy. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In fact, what you ought to do, you ought to take this chapter, Luke chapter 1, you ought to look at Luke chapter 2 with the announcement that was made to the shepherds then you ought to go to Matthew's gospel and, and look at the account of the angel's message to Joseph. 
and count up all of the times that you find that word joy or rejoicing uh, or rejoice mentioned in the Christmas narrative. And it all emphasizes this point that, that Christmas ought to be something that brings joy to the world. Uh, it brings joy to the world simply because it is the news that the Lord is come. Now listen, this is something that Watts understood when he said joy to the world, the Lord is come. He didn't say has come. Uh, if it's not something that we're looking back to in the past, as far as appreciation and worship goes, he did come in the past through his first coming. But the fact that we sing the Lord is come emphasizes the fact that there is a present reality that we live out of in view of the fact that the Lord is come. There is present practical benefit uh, when you consider the truth of the Lord's coming, the birth of the Savior. And folks, that benefit is joy in your heart. Now in this passage, there are a few reasons I want to point out to you while we have reason to be joyful this Christmas season. So notice, number one, that it all has to do with a life-changing message. Mary, in the Annunciation, is given uh, news of a life-changing message. Gabriel comes to her and announces this life-changing, world-shattering message uh, that the Son of God is coming into the world and that she is going to be the instrument that God is using. Now, that reference to the sixth month there in verse 26 uh, is a reference to Elizabeth's pregnancy. Uh, it was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, six months after Gabriel had announced that Zechariah and Elizabeth would conceive and give birth to the forerunner, John the Baptist. So, so Luke is showing a connection between those two birth narratives. And that's really what you have in this first chapter. You've got uh, miraculous births that are being announced. Uh, one being the birth of John the Baptist, who would be born to a couple well past childbearing age. And then the birth of God's own son through uh, the Virgin Mary. So Gabriel is now sent into Galilee, a city or a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, that would have been something absolutely shocking to the first century Jewish mind, that God would send his messenger to a place like Nazareth, of all places, to announce the news that Messiah is coming. Uh, Nazareth was just an ordinary run-of-the-mill town, nothing special about it. Uh, in fact, it was a predominantly Gentile area, roughly 60 to 70 miles north of Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at a map of Israel and you look at the Sea of Galilee, go to the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee and go about 15 to 20 miles to the west, and there you'll find the little town of Nazareth. And even to this day, there's nothing really spectacular about Nazareth. Uh, you would think that when God would send news to the world and announce the news that his own son was coming into the world, that perhaps he would send Gabriel to uh, perhaps Athens, Greece, which was the seat of culture at that particular time, but he doesn't do that. Or you would think that he would send Gabriel to the city of Rome, which was the seat of political power in that time, but he doesn't do that. Or you would think that he would send Gabriel to Jerusalem, uh, which was the seat of religious influence at that particular time, but he doesn't do that. Where does he send Gabriel? 
He sends him to Nazareth of all places, an unlikely place, a predominantly Gentile place, and that's very significant. Matthew's gospel uh, quotes from Isaiah uh, and, and says that Nazareth is in Galilee of the Gentiles where the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So it's interesting and it's significant that God is announcing to Nazareth a Gentile place that the savior of the world is coming into the world. None of the religious elite were looking for the Messiah to show up in such an obscure place, but yet that's exactly where God sends the angel Gabriel. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you're too far from God where he don't know where you are or he can't find you? He specializes in saving sinners. And that's what you see illustrated here even in this this annunciation as Gabriel is sent to Nazareth of all places. Well, notice the news that is given to Mary. Uh, She's a virgin. She's in the betrothal phase of marriage. And in in the Jewish understanding of marriage, marriage involved three phases. Uh, There was the engagement phase. Then there was the betrothal phase, and then you had the actual ceremony itself, which consisted of a seven-day celebration where all the friends and all the family gathered together, celebrated a feast, after which the marriage itself was consummated. Well, Mary and Joseph are in the betrothal phase. They had not come together physically, but that betrothal phase was a legal binding relationship. And so you understand that, that, that really is why Joseph finds himself in the dilemma that he does uh, in Matthew's gospel. And we'll look at that later on. But Gabriel announces to Mary, she's betrothed to Joseph, but look at the greeting there in verse 28 where he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So the first thing that Gabriel tells her is that God's presence is with her. And that's significant because she's about to experience a roller coaster ride in life. And the only thing that she would have to cling to was the understanding that God was with her and that God was orchestrating the events of her life to serve his purposes. And by the way, that ought to be a word of encouragement for us this Christmas season in light of where we've been in the roller coaster ride of life this year. Christmas is God with us, Emmanuel. And in the difficult seasons of life, when the bottom seems to fall out of life, thank God for the truth that he is with us. So this is a promise that Mary has given her uh, here. So her reaction is seen there in verse 29. uh, She's troubled. Means that she's stirred up. She's shaken in mind. She's startled by this greeting. She doesn't understand what it all means. She knows that this is not an ordinary man speaking to her, but this is an angel. This is a messenger from God. Why would an angel from God come to her with the news that she is favored and the Lord is with her? And so the angel reassures her and says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So she's given the promise that God is with her. And notice she's also given the promise that God is for her. God is going to be gracious. She's a recipient of the grace of God. Now, let me take a time out for just a second because Roman Catholicism, and I know that we often have folks that come from Catholic backgrounds, uh, Roman Catholicism, because of a translation in the Latin Vulgate of verse 28, 
uh, interprets this uh, greeting, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And from that comes the Roman Catholic practice of saying the Hail Mary, which is basically a prayer to Mary, asking Mary to, 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 to dispense grace. It was Roger Staubach in 1975 with the Dallas Cowboys uh, in a playoff game who, who popularized the Hail Mary pass. He basically said, I just closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary and let the football go. <laughs> the Hail Mary, listen, this has nothing to do with Mary being a dispenser of grace. But it has everything to do with Mary being a recipient of grace. Mary is not a source of grace that we run to in our time of need. Because this says that Mary is receiving special grace from God. She's the subject of grace. You need grace and you're, listen, you go to Mary's son. You go to the Lord Jesus Christ if you want grace. That's why he came in the first place. So Mary is being told that God is with her. Uh, she's the recipient of grace. But then notice, notice the real meat here of this life-changing message. Verse 31, Gabriel says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Let me tell you what you find here in these verses. It basically is a summary of the gospel. This is basically a summary statement, a sweeping statement of, of the life, the death, and the reign of Jesus Christ. Gabriel says something about the identity of this child in the name that he's to be given, the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. That's why he came. The same thing that's going to be said to Joseph in Matthew chapter one, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The same message that is going to be given to the shepherds in Luke chapter two, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's the same thing that Simeon is going to say when he, when he sees the infant Jesus in, in, in Luke 2, verse 30, where he says, mine eyes have seen your salvation. Now, folks, listen, Jesus doesn't simply give you salvation. Jesus is your salvation. That's what his name means. And this is why Jesus could say what he did in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's why Peter could say what he does in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even in the name Jesus, there is something to be said about the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusive, by the way, listen, that may not be a popular message to preach in our pluralistic society where everybody says all roads lead to God, doesn't matter how you worship, doesn't matter what God you call upon, what matters is that you worship because all roads really lead to God. Listen, let me tell you, all roads do lead to God because every single person is going to stand before God one day, but not all roads lead to salvation. Amen. Jesus said, I am the way. He is salvation. There is no salvation outside 
of faith in Jesus Christ. And so the angel tells Mary that she's to call his name Jesus. It, it speaks of his identity as the one and only Savior of mankind. Now, by the way, one person has expressed it this way. Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is, which means it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done in life, how bad you've messed up in life. You can be saved through turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so in that way, this is good news for the whole wide world, isn't it? But the, the angel goes on, and in verse 32 says that he will be great and called the son of the most high. The fact that he's great, that has something to do with his nature. It's not something that's granted to him, but something that's possessed by him. Now you go back up or earlier in the chapter, and you'll notice that that uh, verse 15 says that John the Baptist will be great in the sight of God. He will be great before the Lord. There's a qualifier there. Oh, but there's no qualifier here in verse 32. Jesus is great simply because of who he is. He is great because this is deity wrapped up in humanity. He is great. He's unlike anyone who's ever lived or will ever live for that matter. He's great because he is the one who is the fulfillment of all prophetic hope and messianic anticipation. He's the one that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the fact that he's a child who's given, this speaks of his humanity, but the fact that he's a son who's given, this speaks of his deity. There's something different about this child. He is the God-man. He's great in the sight of God, or the sight of the Most High. In fact, that title, Most High, there, that's used in verse 32, uh, is used of God to express the fact that there is none higher, there is none greater, there is no one more powerful, there's no one more transcendent, this is how the Jews referred to God as the most high. He's, he's the highest high. He's greater than the greatest great. And the fact that Jesus is the son of the most high, uh, this indicates that he is of the same essence. This is, this is God made man. This is deity wrapped up in humanity. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What Paul says in Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. That's why to know Jesus is to know God. He is God in human flesh. But Gabriel's not finished because notice what else he goes on to say in verse 32. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the fact that he is to be named Jesus, this speaks of his identity as our salvation. Um, that he is great, the son of the most high, this is, this is the, he's God in human flesh. But then notice that he is king, and this is seen in the statement that he's given the throne of David. 
Isaiah says the government is going to be on his shoulder. Who does the government ultimately belong to? Let me tell you, it's not the Democrats or the Republicans. It's not to the dictators and the monarchs of this world. But the word of God says that the kingdom belongs to God's own son. And it pleased the father to give to the son a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will be without end. By the way, this was something that Daniel was given a glimpse of, wasn't he? You remember in Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the Son of Man, where Daniel said, I saw someone coming on the clouds of heaven who was like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. And his dominion is one that will never pass away. And to know Jesus is to be a member of that kingdom. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now let me tell you something. Uh, We've not done a very good job in the church of our day of preaching the lordship of Jesus. Now we've done a pretty good job of getting Jesus off of the cross. One person has said it this way, evangelicals have, have done a pretty decent job of getting him off of the cross. That's why we wear a cross as an instrument of jewelry, not a crucifix. The crucifix has Jesus still on the cross. We've got him off the cross, but listen to this. We've not done a very good job of getting him to the throne. Christ is enthroned. And the message does not end with the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then our personal salvation. And I go on and live my life. I go my own merry way and live however I want to live. Let me tell you something, to have Jesus Christ as your savior, to place your faith and your trust in this Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, who rose again on the third day, is to bow before this Jesus as Lord and master of your life, recognizing the fact that to him is given dominion, to him is given a throne, to him is given a kingdom that will be without end. He's ruling and reigning in the spiritual sense. The Bible says that one of these days he's going to return and he's going to establish a kingdom in the literal sense. And this is what's being announced to Mary here. So can you see how this is just a life-changing message that ought to produce joy within the heart of the believer? Well, notice the second thing very quickly. The second thing is this, a mind-blowing mystery. Christmas ought to bring joy to my life when I consider the fact that it's a a life-changing message, but it involves a mind-blowing mystery or, or miracle. Now, obviously, Mary asks the question in verse 34 to Gabriel, how shall this be since I am a virgin? How is all this going to be possible? You know, Joseph and I have not come together, but how is, how is this that I'm going to, to have a son seeing that I'm a virgin. I've known not a man. Her question's not one of doubt, but it's one of perplexity. She's asking about the practicality of it all. And so she's let in on this profound mystery that God would bring about a miraculous conception in her womb. It would be supernatural, the virgin birth. And you say, well, do you really believe that? Absolutely, I believe that. Because you don't have a savior without it. 
You don't have a unique God-man without it. Sometimes someone will come to this and say, well, you know, the Bible says that, but this is probably just, you know, embellishment or myth and that kind of thing. And I'm one of these types, you know, that I'll, I'll take the ethical teachings of Jesus, but I deny the supernatural. I deny the miraculous. Let me tell you, you deny the virgin birth, you might as well deny the resurrection. You deny the resurrection, you might as well deny creation ex nihilo in Genesis 1 and 2. Because let me tell you what you're doing. You're not accepting the God of the Bible for who he is and how he's revealed himself to be, but what you're doing is you're coming up with the God of your own imagination and then you're worshiping that God, which means you're really just worshiping yourself. Without the virgin birth, you have no Christianity. Without the virgin birth, you have no gospel message. You empty the gospel of its power. This is the power of God at work. And it had to be this way because of the very first promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve's sin, as God is pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In that verse, that's the first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It's the seedbed of all messianic promise contained right there in that verse, right there in Eden. God said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Everybody knows that the woman is not the one who has seed. But why is it that that language is used in Genesis 3.15? It's because God's going to do something. God's going to do something. By the way, Isaiah says it in Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so there you have it. The virgin birth is foundational to Christianity. It's the only way to explain how Jesus Christ could be both fully God and fully man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God, 100% omnipotence, 100% deity, and he's 100% perfect, sinless humanity. And in that way, he, he could be the sufficient atonement for the sins of his people. So all of this is being announced to Mary. Uh, Gabriel tells her in verse 35 that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit who will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's the same language that's being used in Genesis chapter 1 in reference to the work of the Spirit that was, that was brooding over the face of the waters. So it's the supernatural activity of God that's going to bring about conception in the womb of Mary is the Son of God, the eternal preexistent one, one with the Father from eternity past, is going to make his grand entrance into our world. It's what John writes about in John 1, how the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. So this is a mind-blowing mystery, isn't it? Christmas is something that ought to cause wonder. Christmas is something that ought to cause us to just be absolutely blown away when we consider the amazing power of our God and what our God has done to secure our salvation. 
I love how Mary responds to all of this. No more questions. There's no doubt. There's no skepticism. There's no hesitation on her part. Gabriel tells her about Elizabeth and says, look, here's a, here's a tangible proof of the power of God to bring about a supernatural birth because your, cousin, your relative, Elizabeth, she's pregnant. Remember how she's been barren? And her and Zechariah are well past childbearing years. She's pregnant. And Mary's response is there in verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm submitted to God. That's what she's saying here. Let it be to me according to your word. So Christmas brings joy when you consider how it's a life-changing message, a mind-blowing miracle or mystery. But then one final thing, it involves a soul-searching majesty. She goes and sees Elizabeth, and they, they talk together, they worship together. And then Mary's song of praise, we don't have time to get to, but there in verse 46 through verse 56, you ought to just underline all that she says about what God has done, how he's shown himself powerful on behalf of his people, how he's honored his word. In fact, she uses this language, he has at least eight times in her song of worship. And so she's magnifying the Lord. She's worshiping the Lord. Christmas ought to be a time where we worship not the work of our own hands, but we worship God when you consider all that he's done to secure the salvation of those who repentance and faith, they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, isn't there any wonder why Isaac Watts could have written what he wrote? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What are the other stanzas of that wonderful hymn? What does he say? He goes on and says, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Man, put your song and put your, verbalize your worship and your adoration of the king. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. All of creation itself testifies to this marvelous majesty. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. For he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Christ has come to reverse the curse that was brought about by Adam's sin. And he rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Aren't you grateful for the joy that's yours? as a believer in Jesus Christ. The life-changing message of the gospel and the mind-blowing mystery of it all and how God has brought it about and how it ought to result in just a soul-searching majesty and sense of wonder and awe in our hearts as worshipers. Listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, I can't think of a better time or a more appropriate gift most important gift you could ever receive than to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, God's own son. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're there watching online this morning and you sense the depth of your need and your sin and you know that you could never secure salvation for yourself, there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved and it's the name Jesus. Then listen, in an attitude of repentance, turning from your sin and self-sufficiency, 
Place all of your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he will save you. Believing that he died on the cross as your sufficient sacrifice for sin, and that he rose again from the dead on the third day, and that he's ascended to heaven and he is Lord, bow the knee to him right now as your Lord and your Master. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, as we pray this morning, we're so thankful, Lord, for the joy that is ours, that's not dependent upon our circumstances. Lord, there is an artificial happiness that the world celebrates that says if we have the right set of circumstances, if we know the right people, and we feel the right emotions, then we can be happy. Lord, the joy of the Lord transcends all of that. That no matter the circumstances of life, we can know joy through what God has done through the gift of his only son. What is joy but the flag that's being held high above the castle of my heart for the king is in residence there. Lord, those that don't know that joy this morning, I pray that today they would come to know Christ in a personal saving way. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen.